0: What we've got here is
1: failure to communicate. And to get hot, I got a lot of—I got hairy legs that turn that 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 that, that turn about uh, uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in and pull and rub my leg down, so it was straight. And then watch the hair come back up again. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. With your host, Mike Paul.
0: And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Mike Paulcast. I am your host, Mike Paul. If this is your first time joining us, uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, If you have not yet listened to last week's episode, I would highly recommend going back and checking that out. Uh, My guest was Matt Erickson, and There was so much information that uh, he delivered during that conversation that when I went back to edit it, I was picking up things that uh, I didn't get the first time because he was just such an encyclopedia uh, of knowledge about all the historical and psychological context of of what's going on in the country leading up to the uh, 2020 election. So I'd highly recommend going back to that and and, and giving it a shot if you haven't done so already. Uh, Matt, of course, is the co-host of the Wealth, Power, and Influence podcast. Um, Today, I am uh, joined by the main host of Wealth, Power, and Influence, Jason Stapleton. So we had a very good conversation that uh, went in a completely different direction than I had anticipated, but we covered uh, many different topics that were very, very fun to kind of pick his brain on that I think you guys will really enjoy. So if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes or hit subscribe and uh, tune in for our weekly podcast. We have a lot of good content coming up over the next couple of weeks. Um, just to name a couple, I have Scott Horton tomorrow uh, and Gene Epstein on Sunday. So there's going to be a lot of good Liberty content for those of you who love Liberty. So without further ado, please welcome Jason Stapleton. So hi jason thank you for joining me welcome to the show
1: thanks man thanks for having me on
0: so last week i had a very uh kind of a deep dive discussion with your co-host matt erickson um we covered a lot of uh really fascinating topics covering the kind of psychological and historical context behind what's going on with the election um I don't so much want to focus on the election because I think there's about a hundred thousand podcasts speculating on what's going to happen right now, right now. And, um, people can go elsewhere for that. Uh, for you, I, I really wanted to talk more about something that's unavoidable, no matter who becomes president. And that's kind of the, the economic financial crisis we have on the horizon, uh, after the, the response of COVID. So what do you foresee is, is coming, uh, 2021 or, um, the math when we open the economy back up,
1: that's a good question. I, I really think it has. It de- it depends entirely on what the Federal Reserve decides to do. So, if if history is any guide, and that's typically the way I look at, I look at both what is what is reasonable, what what makes sense, considering that most people are self interested people, and historically what's been done in the past. I I think that. What's going to happen is the, the central bank is going to continue to create as much money as is necessary to, uh, to to whitewash over the damage that's been done by this by this covid nightmare. Now, if Biden is elected president, we're likely to see a, a massive stimulus bill, assuming that it can pass its way through the Senate. But certainly there is going to be every indication once, he, once he's in the White House that there's going to be a big spending, like probably another $3 trillion or so, because they're arguing right now over between a trillion and $3 trillion, on the low end another trillion. But that, that has, that's just what the Treasury Department is talking about in terms of stimulus. You also have the Federal Reserve, which prints as much money as it wants to and just gives it to banks, and, and they've even been talking about helicopter money. If they do what I think they're going to do, what you're going to see in the short term is a reprieve where it's going to feel like everything's gone back to normal, the economy's kind of humming again, and what we'll wait for is the next kind of catalyst to happen. It might be another economic disaster, it might be really, really excessive inflation. I'm not exactly sure how it's going to manifest itself, but the longer the central bank chooses to continue the charade, which it has every intention of doing, uh, the more catastrophic it will be in the end for us. Now, if Donald Trump is reelected president, there's a, there's a high likelihood that Mitch McConnell will probably, well, and I don't even know if that's true because I think one of the reasons why they were, they were against another $3 trillion package was because they, they were facing reelection. That will probably go away once they uh, once they end up once Trump is reelected and they don't have to worry about that anymore. But assuming that Mitch McConnell holds fast to his desire to keep that next stimulus bill around a trillion dollars, what you're likely to see is. A more heavy set recession. It also depends on how they spend the money. So the Democrats want to spend a lot of that money on government stuff. So they want to take big chunks of that wealth and give it to state governments. Whereas the uh, the financial package put forth by the Republicans is is geared more towards individuals. It doesn't really matter where you send the money. It really doesn't. Once it moves into the hands, once you turn once you turn fake money and you put it out into an economy. Eventually, that money goes back to the most wealthy people in this country, and and then all you have is greater wealth disparity, poorer poor and 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 wealthier rich people.
0: Okay, yeah. Can you expand upon that a little bit as far as how the money ends back up in the hands of the wealthiest when they when they kind of try to help the people that need it the most by by giving them handouts? Yet it somehow. You know, Amazon and Walmart are hitting record profits mm. in the time of all the stimulus.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a really misunderstood uh, concept. One of the reasons we have such severe wealth inequality in this country has a lot to do with how much printing our our federal government has done, how much our our central bank and our and our government have have done. So, if you think about this in terms of of creating new money so let's say for example that there was 10 trillion dollars in our economy there's significantly more than that but let's just say that it was 10 trillion dollars and our government decided to create a trillion new dollars so basically 10 percent increase from 10 trillion to 11 trillion that trillion dollars that they created that they just manifested out of nowhere uh, once that goes into the economy it passes through a lot of different hands, so we can do a lot with that trillion dollars. We can give it to very poor people, we can give it to small businesses, we can give it to big businesses, or or we can just like you know evenly distribute it among everybody. But what happens is, is let's say that we take all of that money and we give it to the the poorest and most needy among us. What do they do with the money? Well, certainly they don't save and invest it because they are the poorest and most needy among us. So they end up spending that money on things that they need, even in the cases where they have more than enough, like they might have a little bit extra that they were given because they didn't have to earn that money. And because realistically, they are the most um, the least financially literate of any group of people, they end up spending that money. Now, where does that money go? Well, it ends up going to small businesses, big businesses, people who know how to attract and keep their wealth. So it ends up moving to the richest people among us. Now, you could do the same thing and give the money to businesses and those businesses and order those businesses to hire employees with the money, which is what our government did the last stimulus pill. And that's fine, too, because then you're going to send the money from government to small businesses. Small business is going to give to the poor people and the poor are going to do what with it? Well, they're going to spend it and they're going to give it right back to the wealthiest people among us. So once you realize that the more money you print, the more stimulus you provide, the greater the wealth inequality and ultimately the the worse poor people are going to be and the better off the wealthy will be, you have to at some point come to the conclusion that. All of this money printing, although it might seem good right now and while it might it might forestall some really dire circumstances for a lot of families, is in the long run a very, very dangerous thing.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where the, the road to hell is paid with good intentions. True. Um, so on a more personal level for, for people who may not have much money or you know have historically been bad with money in their personal life, what should they be doing to prepare for for what's coming in the country
1: well first and foremost is 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 you don't you don't spend what you have frivolously you recognize that there is that there is a danger to not having any safety net at all and if you find yourself in a situation where you don't have any safety net and you can't afford to put any money aside because everything that you have is going towards paying your your bills and 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 subsistence of living then primarily you should be focused on increasing your human capital. And that's a very uncomfortable conversation to have with a lot of people because some people are are working 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And it's hard work too. It's not easy labor. It's not sitting around having podcast conversations like we have. They're, They're really getting their hands dirty. And the idea that it's they're going to have to come home and then going to have to work even more hours and expend mental energy to learn new skills and improve themselves is a very, very difficult thing uh, to suggest to people. But it's what they have to do. It's it's something that if you want to get ahead and you don't have a lot of money and you're limited on your time. You have to find the time. It might be an hour a week, it might be an hour a night, whatever it is, you've, you've gotta be spending that time to increase that, that store of knowledge and skills that gives you value. Because the only way to increase your wealth is to save more than you spend. And the easiest way to do that is to increase your income. See, as we, one of the things that we like to talk about in America is the rich paying their fair share. But what most people don't understand is that the rich don't really pay any taxes. See, I'm a business owner. I pay a lot of money in taxes, but I'm not actually the one who pays that money. Anybody who buys my product or service pays that money because the taxes are built into what I charge. If you reduce the taxes or eliminated the taxes prices would come down because that added expense would be gone from the economy. And so I don't really pay much taxes. And when I get really wealthy, when you become Jeff Bezos or, or, or uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they have ways of avoiding paying taxes that are not even available to you and I. And right. so this idea that you're somehow gonna soak the rich and they're gonna pay their fair share is, is really foolish. It's you and I that pay the, the lion's share of the taxes in this country. And it, it, the easiest way for you to increase your wealth is to increase the value of what you provide so that you can increase your income. And then once you've got a little savings, now the whole world begins to open up to you.
0: Yeah, I heard you say it one time, and I'm not sure if it's an original quote that you came up with, um, but that every financial get rich quick book can be reduced down to the steps of spend less than you make, invest what you save into something you know and understand.
1: Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that is mine. (laughs) That's, okay, that's it.
0: and it's one of those things that I knew on a subconscious level before I heard you say it at such a such an elementary level. But it was like that is so simple. Why wasn't that taught to me since first grade? Why isn't that pumped into everyone's head these simple, basic rules that that could never steer you wrong? Why is that so complex to for people to understand in our society?
1: I, I think that. We overcomplicate it. The people in charge overcomplicate it to make it to confuse it to make it seem difficult. You see, if if you understand that simple principle, that personal finance can be reduced down to two things: spend less than you make, and save and invest the rest in things you understand. If you understand those two things you're like okay well I don't I don't I can't save that much money because I don't make hardly any money. Okay, well then we know what problem we need to fix, don't we? We need to make some more money. So how do we do that? Well, we can work more hours, we can get a better job working for somebody else because we're really not being paid commensurate with our abilities, or we got to go learn some new skills. And it's only after learning those new skills that now we make the extra money. But the problem for most people is when they make that extra money, they immediately increase their lifestyle. And so mm-hmm. they're constantly living at their means. And it doesn't matter how much they make. They could make $50,000 a year, $150,000, 1500000 If they're spending every penny that they make, they're still broke.
0: Right, so, they live paycheck to paycheck. Yeah,
1: and so you, you have to get to a point where you have more than you need to live at a subsistence level. And once you get beyond that, well, now you need to be investing at least a portion of what you make in things that you know and understand. And again, if you know and understand nothing, then you've got some work to do. But that's the roadmap to wealth and financial freedom.
0: Sure. Um, So I have a lot of uh, problems when I talk to my friends who have a kind of a left-wing mindset um, where they really have a view that's so deeply ingrained in them. That wealth is a it's a finite resource and it's a zero sum game. Um, in order for one guy to be rich, ten have to be poor. Um, how do you flip that argument on on its head and really get through to people and, and let them know that no one's holding you back? Mm. It, it, wealth is not a finite resource.
1: Well, that's a very complicated thing to understand, and it's a hard thing for. That's a very analytical discussion, right? So we're dealing with very deep logic centers of the brain, which are hard to overcome. I've learned that, that that's a, a largely um, fruitless effort. And so instead, what I do is, is, is I come from the perspective that, listen, every ethical dollar earned is a byproduct of value creation. If you work on an assembly line and you're putting trucks together at Ford Motor Company and they pay you $28 an hour or whatever it is, it's because you're creating value for the company above and beyond what they pay you. I'm an entrepreneur, I work with businesses. And so I charge, I've got a copy copywriting clinic happening this weekend and I charge $2,000 for that event. Um, uh, The reason that people sign up for that is because they are going to get value in excess of what they spent for that event. The point is, is that when we're providing value to the world, it doesn't matter whether it's a cup of coffee or a new car or new skills, as long as we're providing value in exchange for what we offer, we're doing a service to the world. And at some points you need to spend money Uh, at other times. You don't, you need to save and invest money, but whatever you decide to spend, what you want is a return on that investment above and beyond what you're spending. And I think that if we can focus on that, rather than trying to convince somebody that money is infinite and trying to explain this very uh, abstract concept of money creation, if we just say, look, man, find some way to provide value to somebody that far exceeds what they're getting in return and and that you can charge a high price for because there are lots of people in this world who will pay hundreds of thousands millions of dollars for the knowledge expertise and skill and product that you have all you have to do is figure out what that is and so i choose to focus on that rather than trying to explain to some left-wing guy Why every single every single because really what you're saying is, is that every single CEO, every single company that exchanges a product for money is somehow a corrupt, evil organization. And right. I, I wholly disregard that. All of those all those crazy left wing guys walking around with cell phones, iPhones in their pockets, complaining about, you know, the, the evils of capitalism need to recognize <laughs> that they're deriving value in exchange for the money that they spend. And there's nothing wrong with that.
0: Right. Correct. Um, yeah. Uh, kind of going back to the to the education system, it seems like there's it, we way overcomp- complicated that in today's day and age um, as far as still kind of this urge that every kid needs to go to a four-year university, take out massive amounts of debt at 5 to 13% interest when they're 17, 18 years old, have no idea what they want to do with their life. Their brain still isn't even fully developed. Um, yet so many parents even now are, are still kind of leading their kids down that path because it's, it's like this feedback loop where that's the only way to get ahead in this life is to go to college. Um, you You didn't go to college, correct?
1: No, I did not.
0: Okay. Can you, can you give a little bit of your background and, and kind of explain your stance on, on education?
1: Yeah. I, I, so I joined the military the day after I graduated high school and I spent four years there and another five years traipsing around the Middle East as a security consultant before I started my first company. And... Um, Here's my view on education. I think that the collegiate system in America is largely an antiquated one. And in fact, even, even our primary, and primary education system is, is largely antiquated. It was designed for, it was designed for an industrial age when we wanted to create good workers. And you can get it, You can you can go deeper than that and say that there was an intent by the people who created it to to make subservient people that would be good listeners and would obey their masters. I, I, let's not get into the weeds on that. Let's just but yeah. we understand that the goal was to put people into college so that we could pull them out into an industrial age and we could make good worker bees out of them. The way technology is moving today, the speed at which it changes makes it almost impossible, really does, it is impossible, even if a collegiate, even if a, an, a university was working at optimal, uh, optimal speed, it's still impossible for them to be teaching the most current up-to-date information as it relates to technology and business. That being the case, you have to really question whether or not it's valuable for you to go to college in 2020. The, because the government has largely taken over the financing of college, the costs of going to college have have skyrocketed five, 10, 15 times what the national inflation rate is. This causes a huge problem because college is not only not that valuable in, in terms of what you learn, but it's also very costly. And there are a great deal of companies, some of the largest in the United States and around the world today that are beginning to recognize this and are no longer requiring a college degree. Yes, I've seen this. Yeah. So, so this is what I would say to some young person who's considering going to college. Ask yourself the question, will I need a degree to practice the, 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 in the, in the industry I want to be in. So am I going to be a doctor or a lawyer or a, some other, you know, something like that, that's going to require dentists, something's going to require four years of or eight years of schooling. If it is, then there's no way around it. You have to go. But before you go, ask yourself the question, am I sure that this is really what I want to do with my life? Because only about 30 percent of the people who go to college and actually get a degree end up using the degree that they have in the industry where they have a degree. Everybody else goes somewhere else. So it's really, really important that you ask those questions. If the answer to any of those is no, then the right decision is to not go to college.
0: Yeah. And um, just speaking personally I graduated high school in 2009 and there was an immense amount of pressure back then. I think you're, you're what, your early forties?
1: Yeah. Early forties, 41. Okay.
0: So I I think the, the, the cost of college between my generation and yours really kind of took a hockey stick up in price. Um, So it was kind of the the parents' mindset was still like, you have to go to college, you have to go to college. And it was one of the most nerve wracking decisions I ever made when I graduated, but I, I had a natural instinct to, to be terrified of taking on debt. I never had, I didn't have my first credit card till I was like 24, 25. I never wanted to borrow money that that I didn't have on hand. It was just an instinct that I was raised with. And if I didn't have the cash, I couldn't afford it. Um, but that being said, it, it was a very a hard decision to, to not go to a four-year university because the implication was that you're going to end up flipping burgers or being a janitor hmm. for the rest of your life. Um, so I actually went to be an A&P aircraft mechanic. I did a trade school for two years there at a local you know. community college. Cost me seven grand for two years. I, I worked at an airport rebuilding engines for the time I went there. Really enjoyed it, made some lifelong friends out of it, paid as I went. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got an associate's degree at the end of it. Um, I'm not in the field anymore, so I didn't, didn't necessarily need it, but um, I'm happy where I'm at today. But it, it was something that they, they really crammed down your throat. These predatory loan officers come in, these, these, these college recruits, um, I, I I'm the same way. i got I got four little kids now um from ages seven. I have twins that are one year old and I have a three year old son. Hmm. And by the time they're at college age, um if I haven't if the evidence isn't in already that that they, it's probably not the best path statistically to to get ahead, um, I'd feel like I may have done something wrong if they if they can't read that um because there's so many cases to point to where we're going to these massively expensive schools really is is not the most lucrative route to get your life started Mm.
1: well i mean i have four kids too and i I was talking with my fiance about this the other day and i said well when when my kids get that age there's going to be some discussion that happens and it's going to go something like well dad i want to go to college where are you going to pay for it and the question will be well what are you going to do and if the answer is anything other than I am, I am convinced that this is what I want to do with my life. I am 100% sure I want to do it. And yes, I need the degree. Uh, if there's anything else, the answer is going to be no. If they're like, well, I want to go to college and study business. Nope. Absolutely not. I'm not paying $150,000 for you to do that. You can pay that. You can take on the debt if you're that confident that that's what you want to do. But I won't pay for that. If I've got a kid who wants to study sociology or some you know, sports science or some garbage degree like that, the answer, of course, is going to be a resounding no. Um, And uh, I would much rather spend $100,000 if one of my kids wants to study business to actually have them start a business. I mean, can you imagine what you could do with a hundred grand to launch a company? I could probably, you could probably (laughs) launch four or five of them, right? I'd love to have one of my kids test three or four or five different businesses as they grow and study and learn if business is where they really want to be. If what you really want to be is a glorified secretary, well, then just go get yourself a secretary job and save yourself the $150,000 in debt. This is this is the type of conversations that we need to be having with our kids where we yeah. say, oh, yes, I'm more than capable of paying, but I won't. And here's why. And then let them decide whether or not it's valuable enough for them to destroy the next 30 years of their earning potential by taking on debt and having to pay it down.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because that's kind of what I ended up doing um, after school. Is I, I was working at an airport um, doing the what I went to school for, but it was something I really enjoyed, but kind of a dead-end route unless you wanted to go work for an airline and join a union and commute to O'Hare Airport every day. Mm-hmm. Just not really my style. Um, but I ended up leaving that and, and I, I co-founded a collector car auction with my dad. Um, we put on two auctions in 15 months. Um, we had about Three hundred thousand gross sales at each of them. Um, they're they're no they're no longer in business uh, for multiple different reasons. But uh, the amount of knowledge I I gained from starting that, going through all the licensing, the uh, all the startup costs and advertising, meeting with customers, taking pictures, writing ads, starting a website, I, signing every single check, doing all the accounting. I got done with that fifteen month experience of running those two auctions, and I I felt like there is no school on earth that that could have given me what i just learned from that even though you know i ended up we ended up packing it up after a while just because it it, the lifestyle was way too much i wanted to get married i wanted to slow down Mm -hmm. i was working seven days a week and it it wasn't enjoyable (laughs) it got to the point where i definitely could have uh made it very lucrative had we kept running with it but I'm happier to have four kids and a wife at age 30 than a seven-figure business and being single.
1: Yeah, so. sure. Yeah, and and, that, and it's all about choices, right? And, that, and that's that's yeah. an important point that you that you that you, you did it. You recognized it wasn't what you wanted, and what I find with most people, and in most people, this is true, is that you talk to them. They go to college. You, you're asked at 19, 18, 17, 18, 19 years old. Hey, decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. And yeah. then go study that, rack up a bunch of debt, and then go do it. It's criminal. It, it really is. When when what yeah. should happen is is exactly what happened with you. See, you expended, you made money, learned a skill, realized it wasn't what you wanted to do with your life, and then you were able to move on. Well, not only with no debt, but probably with a little bit of money in your pocket. That is the exact opposite that most college kids find when they go to school. What they have is a lot of debt. And, and, and working in an industry that they probably didn't need a degree for and and uh, saddled with a massive amount of debt that they have to find a way to pay down. That, that really is criminal. It is absolutely criminal what colleges and our government is doing to young people and now of course the answer to that not to make this too political but the answer to that of course is to just write off all this college loan debt is now you've got people in washington who are saying oh people are saddled with all this debt that we helped to create so now we want to write it all off and put it on the taxpayers back how absurd is this but once again it's government fixing problems that they created and saddling you with the debt
0: yeah and ironically it's guys like you and i who who didn't go to college and, and went against the grain who uh gambled the odds with, with to get ahead in life without going to college we have to kick in and foot the bill for everyone who did now so it's yeah. it's completely just immoral yeah. um and then even the people who did go to college and responsibly paid off their debt they got the debt paid off but now they got to pay off their neighbor's debt too um that, that's something that absolutely infuriates me um cause I, I, I have a lot of people I know that are on the left that, that advocate for that. And I'm going, look, I, I gambled the odds. I didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. So why, why do you have the right to like, make me take more money out of my check? I got a family to raise. We, we have a single income and I have six people in my, in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't need money taken out because of your life choices. Yeah.
1: I, I always say, I don't need another dependent in my life. You know, I, right. I provide, I provide for seven people. Uh, you know, in, in my world, seven people rely on me to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to, you know, to give themselves shelter and I don't need another mouth to feed. I'm not responsible for you and your bad decisions. That's not, I I remember, I'll tell you this story. So I'm walking down the street in Los Angeles This is when I live downtown and, um, there's a guy with his, with his, what I'm assuming is his wife and he's pushing a stroller and he's out there begging for money. And in, in L.A., everybody's begging for money everywhere. There's a there's a homeless guy on every street. And um, I he he walks by me. He's like, uh, "Sir, can you spare a few dollars?" And I just I said uh, I said no, I, I can't. And he just kept walking. Uh, and he said, well, "God bless you, sir. You and your family." Like really intensely. Like yeah, like like yeah. Thanks a lot, dude. I hope your family does well. And mm. I turned around. and I walked back over to him. I said, "Listen, man." I said, I got seven people that rely on me. I said, I got another two who work for me. Uh, I said, I can't, there are, there's a limit to the number of people in this world that I can be responsible for. And so I do wish you well, I wish your family well, but you're not getting any money from me. And I just turned around and walked away. I don't remember exactly. It was something along those lines. I turned around and walked away. But at some point, you have to say, look, I'm not responsible for you. You made the decision. You had a family. You had children. You went to college. You did these things. You are responsible to figure out how to take care of yourself. That doesn't mean that we're not charitable. It doesn't mean that we don't go to people and say, when people need a hand up, we don't say, look, I'll step in. I'll give you a couple of bucks. I'll take care of you. But we do that sparingly for the people that we believe truly deserve it and who we believe will benefit from it. Right. And I think the, the greatest disservice that we do is, is we claim that we have some sort of responsibility to take care of the world. Oh, if you've managed to make a lot out of yourself, somehow you're responsible for taking care of all the people who couldn't. That's not mm-hmm. your job. Your job yeah. is to provide value. That's it.
0: Yeah, and that gets mistaken as like a, a lack of compassion. Um, they they kind of see from from the left, and it's really not. You know, they, they think you, you don't care about people. You you want poor people to starve. Yada mm-hmm. yada yada. Um, when in reality, the wealthy are 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 probably the most charitable people. I mean, the private organizations, the the the, the charitable causes that go on far more for people. Well, that
1: we're, are, that we're, are we're a than very, cha- yeah, we're a very charitable country, $320 billion a year with individuals given charitable donations. We're, we're the most charitable by dollar value, I think by percentage as well of any nation on earth. America gets a very bad rap for that. But more importantly, all these people who chastise guys like you and I for not paying our fair share and, and not giving to the poor, these are people who who don't take any responsibility. If you take a look, like Bernie Sanders, for example, gave 4% of his wealth to charity the year he made a million dollars and all 4% went to political campaigns. This man doesn't care about the poor. What he wants is he wants power so that he can take from people he, has, he feels has too much and give it to people he feels has too little. And then he can stand in the middle and say, look at what a great guy I am. Look at how charitable I am. When in yeah. fact, he cares nothing for the poor. He's not willing to give one red cent of his own money to help some poor indigent person on the street. Yet he will criticize men like you and me for our indifference. How foolish. Right.
0: Yeah, there, there's nothing virtuous about being charitable with someone else's money. You know, it's, it's if, if I went to my neighbor's house and stole his lawnmower... And then sold it and, and gave the money to someone who's poor. I'd be like, no, I didn't rob you. I, I just, I just did a charitable service.
1: Yeah, right, you exactly. Know? And that, that's essentially what they do. And so what a lot of left-wing guys is, is that what they want is to give money is power to government for, so that government can redistribute the wealth. But if you look at most of their bank accounts, they give very little to charity themselves.
0: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, another one of the the issues I I've heard you speak on before that I kind of want to expand upon it, it's kind of uh, goes back to the education system and everything, but it, it's uh, the, like the licensing and, and all the um, the government red tape and artificial barriers to entry for for entrepreneurs. Um, I, I've had minimal experience with that, like I said, with the the, the ventures I've I've tried. Um, but can you explain why a lot of these? different industries have license requirements, schooling requirements, when in reality, it's not heart surgery. These are, you know, a haircut or something mm-hmm. that it's, no one's gonna die if someone doesn't have a license and is practicing. How do these things get put into law and, and, and it makes it so expensive for someone to, to enter the game, to become a competitor, to, to uh, start up in a lot of different industries? Um, what causes that to happen?
1: in most cases licensing happens because a certain group of people in an industry want to limit the number of people who are allowed access so in most cases licensing is a way to limit the number of people in a specific industry so take uh, take uh, barber shops or beauty salons for example in in most states that requires a license uh, and that license, I, for some, I know in Kansas because I had a barber in Kansas who told me all about it, it cost about $40,000 to get a license to cut hair. There's no mm-hmm. logical reason to need a license to cut hair. What should happen is if you want to be a barber, you should go and you should go to a barber shop that needs help. And that barber should hire you on an apprentice basis and should teach you the basic skills that you need. Or you can go to school to get some of the basic skills and then you can end up going and getting hired once you prove that you have a proficiency, right? That it can happen a bunch of different ways, but there's absolutely no reason for the licensing right now. In many states, you got to pay $40,000 to be able to braid hair in a, in a salon. Now that's not be, that's not to protect the public. That's not to protect you and I. I I use the example. I use a very extreme example, but I I say, think about your doctor, like your primary care doctor. Like, does anybody know where he graduated high school? Do do you have any idea where he went to college or what kind of grades he got in college? Uh, Do you know whether he's up on his certifications and he's done all of his continuing education? Do you know during that continuing education what he actually studied? Because he can do a broad range of things to study if he's doing continuing education every, day to keep, or every year to keep his certifications up to speed. Nobody knows any of that stuff. And so you say, well, wh- why are they your doctor? I mean, this person, you've entrusted this person with your life. When you are the sickest, you go to this guy to give you advice. You don't know anything about his credentials? Like, well, you know, I got a good I recommend. I got a good recommendation from a friend. And you know what? Every time I show up and I'm sick, he helps me get better. So I stay with him. you like, exactly. So what do you need a license for? See, that's the way most of us do most things. We get a recommendation from somebody who's done, who, who, who has done good work and that they trust And then we end up going to them. And if they do good work for us, then we continue seeing them. If not, we go somewhere else. And so why the licensing necessity? Well, in most cases, it's because the industry itself wants to protect itself. It's kind of like unions. Unions don't exist to protect the worker. Unions exist to protect union workers at the expense of everybody else. And once you understand this, now it opens up your eyes, opens up your mind to to the concept of, oh, it, these are actually a detriment to us as a society. They're not a benefit. The 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 need for you to have a, a license and spend $40,000 to braid hair actually prevents perfectly good people from getting jobs braiding hair who could be off unemployment, who could be working more successful jobs than they are now. But for whatever reason, they can't afford to spend the money or they don't have the Uh, they don't have the intestinal fortitude to invest the time to actually get the license. And that's what, that's what they're banking on. And so in most cases, licensing hurts a society. It doesn't help.
0: Yeah. I, not too long ago, I kind of went down the, the uh, rabbit hole of I'm really interested in numbers and in money. So I I was kind of looking into, you know, what would it take to become an accountant if I wanted to open my own practice and I live in Illinois. So I just, Googled it to see what the requirements were. And right away, it's it's just a racket. There's one of eight schools you have to go to that are accredited in the state. So you have to do a four-year college with these programs, rack up 120000 in debt, and then you have to go take the test. And it's, once again, why can't I just go apprentice under a seasoned accountant for three years? Um, and then let me take a test.
1: There's no and, There's no know, reason. Yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of like you can go and get a you can be a dental hygienist make hundred and hundred hundred ten thousand dollars a year depending on where you're at probably more than that eighteen month school why can you not do that for accounting why can't yeah. you spend a little bit of money go to school learn uh, learn it's it's not complicated it's like no. freaking two ledger accounting it's like it's it, accounting is not a difficult it's addition and subtraction that's it. And so the notion that you have to spend four years at a university to go and be an accountant is, is ludicrous, but it's one great example of an industry protecting itself because if it was easy and you could go to an 18 month school or apprentice under somebody and then take a test and be certified to go out and do it on your own, um, the, 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 the the number of accountants in this country would quadruple overnight and it would mm-hmm. drive down the costs of uh, of doing accounting services which of exactly. course would benefit you and i to the detriment of the accounting industry hence why the accounting industry imposes such regulation and restriction on the people who come into it
0: that's fascinating yeah that's it's, it's such a good point um another thing uh, as we'll talk about education a little more is as far as the tools we have at our advantage today. Um, it's really a wonder that we still have people going to, to universities or anything. When you look at uh, Skillshare or even just YouTube or Google, you have all the world's answers to most every question in your pocket at any time. I mean, if my dryer breaks, I can find that make and model immediately. And a, and a guy who has 30 years experience walking me through how to, how to change a belt out. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is there going to be a time, you think, when there's a way where you can Self teach and self educate, and where a degree doesn't really matter anymore, where you, where you can somehow prove it or just take a, a test through a private organization in any field. Um, like when I look at automotive mechanics, have the ASE certification, mm-hmm. the, the Automotive Service Excellence. That's a private organization. You don't have to have that licensing to be a mechanic. You can open your own shop. But When a customer sees ASE certified, they know this guy is part of this, they put their name on him, they're going to pay a little more for that. So do you think there'll be more of those type uh, private kind of degree equivalents if someone self teaches on any number of fields um, and can kind of just go in a room, take a test, they can tell you're not cheating or doing the answers, you have the knowledge in your head. Do you see that coming in the future? Will that eventually replace this archaic degree system that we have?
1: Yes, to some degree. So uh, I think for th- like doctors and attorneys and the- these highly like technical fields, you're still going to have to go to college. You're still going to have to get certified and go to the board and all that stuff that you're, you're understandably, w- that's, so. that's th- it, at least in the near term, like in our lifetime. Um, but I think largely for everybody, everybody else, once more companies, so you have like Google and Apple and and uh, and uh, Tesla and all these other companies who are no longer requiring degrees in order to work there. What they're looking for is proficiency, skill. Um, I think once that takes hold, and it will, with most companies, that will kill the university system as we understand it today. Once you don't have to go through that gatekeeper in order to get a job, because why why else would you go get a business administration degree other than you've got to have one because every major company in America requires it as a prerequisite to get a job? Other than that, why on earth would you go and spend the money? Well, you wouldn't. So as soon as these companies stop requiring it it will crush the secondary education system in America, which is what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it will be small businesses, mid-sized businesses, large businesses. It will be the private sector that kills off the public university system. Uh, and and I, I see that uh, realistically happening in the next 20 to 30 years. I think that you're going to see that kind of that slow decline and m- m- all these companies are going to be like, dude, why, why are we doing this? We're losing all kinds of really great talent because they didn't go to college but they're more experienced they're more knowledgeable because of all of the other information and training that's available we're foolish not to hire these people we're losing the best talent and once that happens this the university system as we understand it is dead
0: yeah and um I, just once again speaking personally i Since I left the auction venture that we tried and then dissolved, I've been working in a sales representative job where I travel about a thousand miles a week in my car. And for about four and a half years now, I've been doing nothing but listening to podcasts and audio books when I drive. And, most of it, I don't listen to too much entertainment or fiction books. It's a lot of economics, history, mm-hmm. um, politics, things that are I'm, I'm generally interested in and I want to explore. And no, no one's telling me I have to read it like I, like it was high school. This is stuff that I want to learn. So I'm paying attention and trying to digest it. And I just look today out of curiosity. And since I downloaded my Stitcher app four years ago and my audible uh, app, I, I've accrued like something like twenty five hundred hours of listening. Um, and a lot of it's listening to guys like you or Dave Smith or, or mm-hmm. any of Joe Rogan's specialists that come on there and people that I, I want to learn from who, who know a lot about economics or any of the topics I, I really enjoy listening to and learning about. And I kind of realized like that's, that's very close to the amount of hours it would take to get a bachelor's degree. Um, only, uh, I'm kind of picking and choosing who my professors are for the day and what I want to learn about, but I have no way to transfer that to paper to prove that I know it, you know, i I, I'm not an economics major on paper, but mm-hmm. I really have learned a lot from listening to, to guys like you who know more than, than myself about it um, over years and years of, of accruing knowledge. And I, I really hope that a lot of people start to wake up to, I've maybe spent $400 on audiobooks through all this. That's all this education has cost me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, it blows my mind that people are dropping six figures And then dropping out of what they're what they're doing for their major Mm -hmm. when you can really teach yourself anything you want to teach yourself right now for next to nothing.
1: Well, not only that, but because there is some sort of practical application or at least an interest, a deep interest in what you're choosing to study on your own in your own free time your comprehension and your retention increases a hundredfold. So instead of being in class and being like, dude, I don't understand. I just need to get a good grade so I can move on so I can get a job. You're like, you're saying to yourself, no, I'm really interested in this. Like I want to understand economics better. I want to understand business better. Uh, And so there is a, There is a desire to understand, to comprehend what we're learning and not just to not just rote memorization for the purpose of a grade. Uh, I I just think everything improves when we do that. And there there is a there's I think we have there's no question there is a better way to educate our youth today. Mm. It's just going to take time to break down the old systems. All of the old guard is going to have to die off. Uh, that's just the way our world works, but we're getting close to that point. Our generation is the first that is going to walk in and say, these things are not necessary. And so in the next, like I said, that's why I say it's 20, 30 years from total annihilation is that that's what it's going to take for the old guard to finally pass. And for us to step in and finally say, okay, now we are the net. We are now the leaders. We're the old guard now. And this is stupid.
0: Yeah, I hope that happens before my kids are of age. <laughs> <laughs> me too, God, me too, brother. Me too. Um, so kind of turning back to, to what's going on in the economy right now, where would you recommend somebody who has uh, you know, maybe followed listening to Dave Ramsey, they have six months of, of salary and savings for an emergency right now, um, but there, there's not really any clear path of what's going to happen over the next couple of years. Where would be the best place to put your cash?
1: Well, it would it, it would depend on whether you need it or whether you just want to put it away. So it's, I, let, me, let me give you the clearest answer I can. It's an odd one. It's not one that I would have made six months ago or ten a year ago. Uh, I'm putting most of my savings, so to speak, that's the, just my, long, my long-term money holdings that I don't really need but I don't know what to do with, I'm putting most of that in Bitcoin right now, because with all of the money that's being poured into all this money creation that's happening, it is virtually a certainty that you're going to see inflation. Uh, I'm not sure where we're going to see it right now, but because of because of the amount of money that's making its way into the economy without getting too deep into the economics of that, I think that we're going to see some pretty significant dollar inflation. So I don't want to lose my savings to inflation and for it to be eaten up that way. So I'll put it into Bitcoin which should if if I'm correct should rise in proportion to the amount of inflation that we see in the economy. Now that's not entirely true because there's a lot of like emotion and speculation that happens around Bitcoin, but I'm relatively certain that my money will at least maintain its value in Bitcoin or in gold versus losing you know probably two percent to three percent a year if i kept it in cash and, and so that's one option i think another good option if you consider the fact that real estate or that that um inflation is going to be a significant issue is real estate uh, god's not making any more land we we've mm-hmm. got as much as we can and and the buildings that we build on that land have value too so whether you're buying raw land or whether you're buying property those are income producing assets potentially that that also are a hedge against inflation so that's another option if you don't understand financial markets don't be involved in them because they right. they're they're highly highly volatile and you are really prone to a lot of emotional decisions and, and emotional reactions that are often not in your best interest so having been a currency trader for 10 years my advice to anybody who is considering the finance, like, like stocks, bonds, that kind of stuff for investments is make sure you understand it. And if you don't make sure you educate yourself before you start putting large amounts of your money into there, uh, because it is, it will be dangerous in the long run to have your wealth there. We'll probably increase with inflation as we move forward, but we'll hit a tipping point. And the problem is you won't be able to tell when that is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It really caught me off guard when the when COVID broke out, we were like, I mentioned, I have one-year-old twins. We, we outgrew our last house. So I had put a non-contingent offer in on a larger house right before the, the lockdown hit. Um, in fact, we listed our, our old house two days before Illinois lockdown. Um, so it was a white hot market. Things Mm -hmm. were going just selling in an hour, selling in a day where we were at. So we, we priced it pretty ambitiously. Um, put it for sale and the whole world went to hell <laughs> and, um, nobody was leaving their house. Nobody was coming out. And I was, you know, I had like a 30 day window to either cancel the offer on the new house. Cause I was about to be stuck with two houses mm-hmm. and, um, I was out, of, I was off work for a little bit, but thankfully everything worked out with that, but it was unclear at the, at the time. And I, we weren't sure what to do. And I was calling everyone I knew that was, uh, you know, good with money. You know, wh- where should I put my money right now? What should I be doing? Should I be buying a house? Is this a bad idea? You know, should I just wait it out? Um, fortunately, it all worked out. We moved it to contingent. Um, we ended up doing some big price cuts on our old house. But we still walked out in the black on it, um, and and we we did we uh, were able to lock in with a two point nine nine five percent interest rate on a thirty year mortgage, fixed Perfect. rate, beautiful. So yeah, all is well that ends well. But it, it was it was a rocky, rocky road. But the one thing I really walked away uh, learning from that was that when things were really starting to get crazy, nobody was really sure with with a clear answer what to do. Everyone I talked to, they, they everyone said Bitcoin, gold, silver, mm-hmm. probably your stable bets, mm-hmm. but it was unprecedented and it was a very, uh, it's a very wild time. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm paying more and more attention now to, to not trying to get rich quick off anything, but, but where can I protect my wealth? And that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out.
1: That's a, that's a really insightful statement is that you are no longer looking at how do I achieve like unrealistic returns, but how do I, how do I protect what I have? And I think that there is a time that we need to risk and not to play it safe. But certainly I think that with at least a portion of our wealth, the question should not be, how do I make sure I'm making 15% returns a year on this, but rather I've spent a lifetime building this, uh, my lifetime at least. How do I not lose this? Right? How do I make sure that this is here when I really want it in my twilight years? And that's not a question enough people ask. And so it's uh, you know, it shows an incredible amount of, uh, I, I don't know, just um, intelligence and, and maturity for you to say that because most people won't. Most people far older than you or me won't say that. I've had conversations with people about their finances who are in their 60s that you wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just like, wow, how after 60 years on the planet can you still be this inept um, at at the way that you manage your finances? And it just it is, uh for some people it's unavoidable, but it shouldn't be you or I.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what I've learned over the years because uh, back when I was single, before I had a family, Um, I had a side hustle of uh, buying and selling sports cars and muscle cars. So I've kind of gotten all that out of my system of, of, you know, status symbols. I've had Dodge Vipers and Cadillacs and Corvettes, and I I always had cool cars. But then the minute I met my wife, she had a three-year-old daughter, that whole switch just flipped. I was like, nope, drop everything that's materialistic. That's what I want. And um, now I'm driving a 15-year-old Prius and just deferring gratification and just going, you know what? I want, I want, we're on five acres now. She doesn't work. We have one income and it's, it's a better lifestyle. But now, now I'm free. We're we're not in any massive debt anywhere. I, we're, I'm not wealthy by any means, but we have, we're we're comfortable and protected for a little bit if something mm-hmm. happens. And now it's kind of where I can sit back and make decisions of what I want to do now that I'm 30 and not 18, figuring out what uh, I want to do with my life.
1: Dude, brother, I, I am with you 100%. I remember when I was, when I was young and poor, I, I lived in this it sounds funny. I lived in the Midwest. So my first house was like $170,000 and I, it was a three bedroom, two bath home that I bought. It was brand new and it was a nice place, but we ended up outgrowing it. And I ended up, uh, it was when my company really was starting to do well. And I bought this 7,000 square foot home on three and a half acres that had a pond in the back. And it was like, It was a gorgeous property. I I bought a brand new car and my my uh, my wife at the time had a brand new suburban and was like, dude, we had all the things. Mm -hmm. And what I realized was, dude, this is nothing but a gigantic bill every month. Okay, it's sixty grand for this car, and it's seventy grand for the suburban, and it's sixty five hundred bucks a month to pay the mortgage and maintain the property. and dude, like it's just a bill every month that I gotta pay for. And I've come to a point in my life now. like I have my Mercedes. I have a, I have a decent car. I have a Mercedes. It's a two thousand eight though. And I'll drive it until it dies. And then I, I, I'll probably buy some old beater Bronco after that. Like I have no, my desire in my twenties and early thirties was status. It was like, dude, I want to show people how successful I am now. I don't give, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, like I don't, That's fine. Okay. I don't give a fuck what people think of me. (laughs) Like I am happy to drive around in a beat up. Like I'm looking at, I was, I was watching a movie the other day and they had one of those like old nineties Jeeps that had like a semi lift kit on it and these big tires. I'm like, dude, I love those old Jeeps. I would love to have one of those old cars and just drive around in that thing and not care whether I beat the hell out of it. Dude, that's where I'm at in life right now. Like, dude, I, I, I'm not worried about trying to impress anybody what I want is I want to be as free as I can be. And that means keeping, regardless of my income, regardless of my wealth, keeping my overhead as in check as possible.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's, that's all you can really ask for. Like you say, you know, your wealth, that, that's what gives you freedom. Yeah. So it's figuring out how to get that. Um, but yeah, I've, I've always kind of gotten past the the ambitions of just getting rich quick overnight and mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I realized I listened to a lot of um like Naval Ravikant, I'm a big fan of, Yeah. and a lot of it is about just putting in the work and, mm-hmm. and, you know, that it's, it's all just compounding. And if you keep doing it, things will, you're going to be, become valuable to society over a, a five, 10 year period. Yeah. So I'm just doing things I enjoy, like, like podcasting and learning and.
1: Dude, you got it figured out, man. I, I've always said the harder I work, the luckier I get. Amazing <laughs> how that works. You know, if, if I just really put in, and I. I say hard work. I I almost feel I almost feel bad saying that. Cause I'm not laying asphalt in Alabama in the summer. Like I'm not roofing houses in Georgia. I, I'm not digging like when I first got out of the Marines, I was digging holes in the summer and like hundred percent humidity in Kansas City. I don't do any hard work anymore. I sit at a desk and have conversations with you and work on PowerPoint presentations and create funny videos that people subscribe to like, dude, that's my job right now. But it does require 10, 12 hours a day of me doing that stuff. It's just stuff that I actually find interesting. I mean, we're talking here. It's like almost eight o'clock at night and I'm chatting with you. This is work. But it's not really work. It's just me talking to you, drinking bourbon and, uh, you know, running <laughs> filterless. That's, that's just, that's basically what it is.
0: Yeah. No, I remember another quote that you said was uh, between 10 PM and 2 AM is where millionaires are made.
1: Yeah, it is, <laughs> something man. Something I
0: always thought about because I'm in that point in my life where I have, um, you know, like I guess I got four little kids. So they're every waking hour. That's, that's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, they go to bed at eight o'clock. So that's why I had to schedule it late. Um, but you know, I was like, I can it go to bed or, or watch mindless television or, or, or go do something that's, uh, you know, going to result or become something, um, if nothing else, having a great time and, and learning.
1: Yeah. You know, you, you've got to find time to relax There there needs to be that period, for, but you don't need a ton of that, especially if you're hustling. Like I, I made my first million dollars between 10 and two. Like that's, I, I honestly, I honestly did that. And so Um, I look at other people and I say, listen, you can you can't be you can't be angry uh, if you don't put in the work so you can look at your life and be angry because you've been working really hard and you haven't seen a lot of results. I can give you that. But if you're sitting around like watching TV or watching football on Sunday and you're ticking off at five or six o'clock at night after your eight hour shift and you're pissed off that you don't have more money or more free time, dude, that's on you. Cause you Mm -hmm. know, it's your responsibility to get out there and do the hard things. I, I wrote an article today that I sent to everybody on my list that talks about all of my like glaring deficiencies as a human being. And I just said, look, over the last 10 years, I've made 20 plus million dollars, and I don't say that to brag. I say it for a specific reason. I've made about $20 million, despite all of this this litany of deficiencies that I have, emotional, like psychological deficiencies. I've, I've been able to do that. And I did it because I was willing to do all the things that nobody else was willing to do. Number one, I had an ego that was big enough to believe that I could actually do it, to try things that other people wouldn't even try because they'd beat themselves up first. Secondly, because I was willing to work longer and harder than most people. That's the two reasons. It's the whole reason I'm with you. The only reason why you want to interview me today is because of that. Yep, and so absolutely. If, if I can do it, so can other people. And I hope that, that that, that, that's an inspiration to folks rather than just sounding braggadocious. Look, I've been very successful in my life, but I did it despite overwhelming obstacles that I put on myself because of my own de- uh, deficiencies and peccadillos. If your audience is, you know, even modestly better at that living life than I am, they ought to be able to do miles more than I've been able to do. And I, I want that for them. So um, I used it as a testament, but far too many people don't realize that everybody works hard. It doesn't come easy for anyone. And for you to, and for you to believe that it did shows an incredible um, uh, I- ignorance on your part.
0: Yeah, and and I've I've had discussions uh, with some of my left wing friends too, and they they try to tell me how there's it's impossible to, to become wealthy these days. You have to either be born rich or win the lottery. It's kind mm-hmm. of the only two ways. And I show them stats that um, I think it's like eighty nine percent of millionaires are first generation.
1: Yeah, seventeen hundred um, a day. Yeah, and, and something, 80 percent like, yeah, of them are new money millionaires. They made it in their lifetime. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and they just kind of it the cognitive dissonance that comes in when they do that, when you say that to them, because they, 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 can't process that. Their whole worldview comes unraveled if you try to tell them that. So they just kind of write it off that you must be making up those numbers. It can't, it can't be a real thing. Um, and i just like, if you go home and play video games every night and you're not paying down your student debt and you're just paying the minimum payments, then yeah. um, Like I mentioned Naval Ravikant earlier, he he had a quote that really stuck with me saying that uh, he did, did a whole tweet storm about how, how to, wealth. and one of the steps was understand that ethical wealth is possible. If you secretly despise wealth, it will elude you. And I was like, man, that is so true because those people that complain about the rich people having all the money, they're never gonna get ahead mm-hmm. because they think they're they live in victimhood perpetually. And, and I I honestly feel bad for them. I wish they could wake up and realize you have it in your control. To go out and make changes in your life that, that and it, not everything's about monetary gain, but it will result in gain in every direction of your life, whether it's relationships or, or, or status or, or wealth or, or career or anything. But you have to put in the work if you want to get anything out of it.
1: Well, not only that, but it, it says a lot about someone who looks at people who have a lot of money and look at them with disdain, because what it really says is I'm jealous of what you have. I want what you have. I I want to be wealthy. I you you are undeserving of that, uh, which is a which is really a kind of a nasty position to hold, I would think. You know, certainly someone who's gotten their gains through through ill-gotten means is is somebody that we shouldn't we shouldn't look favorably on. but take Jeff Bezos. I mean, the man created a product, a company that has served, so many people, I mean, you think about, dude, I can order anything on Amazon in two days. It shows up there, not to mention the fact that I can mm-hmm. create any product and not only can I sell it on Amazon, I can actually ship it to them and they'll handle all distribution for me. Like it's an amazing company to hey, look, suggest look. that Jeff doesn't deserve the wealth that he's accumulated or somehow he's a bad person for that, or they're a monopoly. And so they need to be, uh, they need to be punished shows a, a level of greed and and uh, and ugliness that i don't i don't want any part of
0: yeah and and to be honest the left should really love jeff bezos if you look at it from their their environmental stance where how much how much gas money is being saved because sure. amazon how much uh you know just uh, structures and and um uh storefronts brick and mortars things that don't have to exist and, and, and take up and run air conditioners mm-hmm. and and really wreck up carbon emissions which you guys that's that's their religion that's their number uh, one
1: it's I <laughs> it was so funny cuz I was talking with my fiance on we were walking around the uh, the neighborhood the other night and I'm like you know what I'm like like really progressive like people who care about the environment they ought to really love covid. I don't know why they're upset about this because mm-hmm. look at this these skies around Los Angeles. There used to be this fog everywhere and now it's beautiful. There's no cars on the road, there's no emissions. Like we should want more covid. We should mm-hmm. want less people on this planet if we're concerned about the environment. We should we should look forward to a million people dead from covid because oh my gosh, what an incredible thing this would be for the for, for our for our uh, you know for our environment i said i don't know why they're so upset about it they should be advocating for it they should be pushing people out into the street (laughs) it shows that it shows the disconnect in in reality and 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 how emotional many many of these people are they don't they don't process things through a logical filter I, I, i i'm a firm believer that we all make decisions emotionally but some people don't even bother with the logic portion. They they just they just choose to purely go with the emotional side. And and for them, well, dude, you should be hoping that another million people die of COVID because that's just going to be so much better for the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you tell that to any of the progressives out here in LA, they'd probably their heads would probably explode. But yeah. it's hundred percent logical based on their rationale.
0: Yeah, well that's actually kind of my fear though, is what if they actually do have have a have a, a, a
1: global warming or
0: climate change emergency where we all have to lock down our houses for six months again.
1: Well it uh, may happen, they brother. They,
0: they can do it. They know they can get away with it. Yep. Um yeah, we're we're running a little past an hour. I don't want to keep you too long. Uh just one last question uh for people listening. If uh what would you recommend if you could recommend one personal habit um that somebody could adapt if they if they wanna change their lifestyle to kind of manifest their dreams into reality? What, what one habit could they shift um, that they could see monetary or um, any sort of gain in Mm -hmm. a positive direction?
1: That's a really good question. Have a start of day routine. And and I don't care. Like when you start your day is irrelevant to me. If you are some person who's a night owl and you do your best work at three o'clock in the morning and you like to get up at noon, that's fine with me. But when you start your day, start it off with some habits. And, and the reason I say that is, is when we, even when we work for ourselves, a lot of people become entrepreneurs because they don't want to have a boss only to realize that they are their boss. And if they don't hold their own feet to the fire, nobody else will. And they'll be, they'll be and working for somebody else before they know it. And so, um, the, the greatest benefit from my life, the most valuable piece of my day, comes in the morning when i plan it now i happen to be an early riser i like to get up around 5 30 six o'clock in the morning i like to go for a walk i like to i like to be up before the world gets up uh, and so I used to get up at four 30 and I don't do that anymore, but it's, it was, I like to be up a little bit before the day starts so that I have time to kind of compose myself. And I go through a very specific morning routine. That is a walk that where I listen to a book or a podcast. And I kind of just allow, uh, my ideas and, and my goals to flow. I, it's a form of meditation for me. And then when I come home, I sit down and I write out what I want my life to look like but I write the goals as though I have already achieved them. So I'll write down, I have a hundred million dollar company. You know, I, I generate more than a million dollars a day in personal income. You know, I, I write these things These are things I have not achieved, but I write them down as though I have to put me in a mental state uh, uh, of somebody, uh, to, to put me in a mental state that's conducive to me achieving those goals. And then after that, I write down three things that I want to do that day, that are going to move me closer towards those goals that I envisioned. And I do it every day. People ask me, are like, dude, do you really do it every day? No, I do it every day. It's the most valuable part of my day because it sets up my day to be productive. Now, the crazy thing is, is you wouldn't think that three things would be that big of a deal. Like, oh, just three things, But no, there's three specific things that move me closer to my goal. It gives my life direction. It gives my day direction. And it focuses me in on what is most important now. And most people go through life wandering. They wait for life to happen to them and then they react to it. Instead of doing that, I flip that on its head and I say, this day is my day. I'm going to crush this day I own this day what am I going to own it for what am I going to make this day do for me and by doing that the amount that I can accomplish in a year or in a month in a quarter is 10 times what other people can produce because I have clear direction that leads me to a destination and so for your listeners whatever they're doing right now add a add a at a beginning-of-day routine, I say a morning routine, but what I really mean is a beginning-of-day routine that's going to set you up for success for the rest of your day. Do it for six months and see if it doesn't change your life radically for the better.
0: Well, that's that's very insightful. That's a, <laughs> uh, definitely something I'm going to give some thought. Um, if you want, go ahead and give some uh, some plugs for your show or your book or anything you want to – you want to plug at this point?
1: Oh, thanks, man. Um, I did write a book. It's called The Nomadic Wealth Formula. I would love to give your audience a free copy of that. If they go to nomadicwealthoffer.com, they can get a free digital download. Uh, I'm not interested in making money on the book, but it is a it is a powerful book. If you liked anything that you heard today, it is something that is going to benefit you immensely. If you want to follow me, you can go to follow Jason. I am all over the interwebs on all the social medias, parlor, Twitter, all that. And you can find it on followjason.com. And then, of course, my website's just jasonstapleton.com. You can go there and sign up and get on my email list and all that stuff. And I'll, you know, hammer you with uh, compelling offers to buy my stuff, which you will probably want because it's pretty good stuff. So those are the three places I'd send people based on their, their desire and commitment level. Awesome. Jason, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.